Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a new partner, Arostia, a new coffee roaster based in Queens. This company was created by and is run by a huge fish fan, Andy Hollander, who hasn't caught a hold your head up since 12, 15, 95, but is definitely not bitter about it. I've had this coffee and it's really great. Andy started roasting coffee during the pandemic, taught himself, and then that turned into this label, Arostia, which launched late last year. I had a bag of the Ethiopian coffee and it was gone really quickly because I liked it so much and I drank a lot of it and I need more. The beans were grown at an altitude of 2,100 meters above sea level, which contributes to a dense bean that continues to develop its flavors after the roasting process is done. The tasting notes include apple, raisin, and caramel, and there are more coffees coming very soon. So support this fan-owned business and try the coffee today. And for Osiris listeners, there's a 10% discount code on the site. Use the code OSIRIS at checkout for 10% off your order, and stay tuned for the launch of a coffee subscription. You can order and sign up for the mailing list at arostia.com. That's A-R-O-A-S-T-I-A.com. And you can find Arostia on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks, Arostia. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Osiris. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. I'm Megan, and I'm here with RJ. 
Hi, RJ. Hello. How are you? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm good. That's good. You wrangled your kids. You're ready to go. Yeah, there's a lot of kid wrangling. My wife's at work at her office today, so I'm sort of like, I get the kids from the bus, and then my daughter had a friend come over, so there are four kids in there. And to be honest, the main reason that I almost was late is that I was folding laundry. It has to be done. Someone's got to do it, and I guess it's got to be done. Yeah. Um, anyway, how are things? <laughs> you feeling good? Everything's back? I'm feeling good. Yeah, I'm feeling a lot better. Every day I feel better. And yeah, things are good. I took my students on a field trip today. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, cool. What are we doing? What are we What are we doing? I know. I I'm think actually I know. really excited about today because we're going to talk about a show. It was my fifth show and it was just a really special time in my life. So I'm excited to talk about September 30th. 1995. It's Fish's first headlining gig at Shoreline. Big deal. It was Trey's birthday. Yep. And yep. it was the introduction to the chess match, which started a tradition that has gone on for a long time. Yeah. They didn't re- they didn't mention his birthday at all, did they? I think Paige does at the very end. Like he the says, very end. yeah, good night. Happy birthday, Trey. So okay, cool. So yeah, they were, uh, hello, Josh. Thanks for tuning hey, in. Thanks to everybody for tuning in, for listening. Um, if you're listening to the audio version after the fact, um, thank you. Spread the word. Um, and also subscribe to Osiris Media on Apple for HF Pod Premium. We just recorded a bonus episode yesterday. That was really fun. Um, we talked about the music that we're enjoying at this point um, right now. Not not Fish or Grateful Dead, but like other music. And we had a great conversation. So we're going to do that every week, um, have some kind of conversation. So um what what else do we need to say before we dive in? I guess, you know, Megan, I told you about this awesome uh, event we did. And, and Josh just mentioned that I was on stage with Waterwheel with a giant check. Um, Brando, our friend Brando Rich from Cash or Trade. Um, this was this is why events are fun, because I we didn't know this was happening until about three minutes beforehand. But he said, I have one of these giant checks for Waterwheel because we're going to make a donation. <laughs> That's awesome. Can we do that before the next interview? And I was like, sure, sounds great. So um, I was able to hold the mic for Brando while he gave uh, Waterwheel a big donation, which was really fun. We had a great, great night. It was really fun. Um, so thanks That's everybody. Amazing. For, yeah. And we got to stream it through a company called Volume and we're going to do more stuff with them. And um, it's just everything, everything went well. Um I, I gotta ask before we before we get into this. Um, I think you have some notes on this, but I guess before we get into like where the band was in, in Fall '95 and where you were, um, we did we're working our way to Fall '95 on Undermine, and we're mm-hmm. five episodes in. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we are gonna keep going. We'll eventually land in Fall '95. But it was interesting listening to this show. It seems like based on your notes, you were you were thinking the same thing. Just kind of how how the band got to fall 95 based on, you know, listening to some of these shows from the early nineties. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear them kind of building up. I mean, at this point they had just played Madison square garden the previous December for the first time for one night. And they know that they've got this two night run coming up. It's their first, you know, multi-night residency at New York city at Madison square garden. It's a big deal. So they're kind of building up to that. And even though the beginning of this tour doesn't kind of reach the heights that I think later they do in fall, it's still awesome to listen to. There's some incredible moments and you just hear their tightness and their speed and 
it sounds effortless for them. And Trey is just an absolute machine. It's incredible. I mean, we'll get into it, but the speed of some of these songs is like, it's incredible. Yeah. I was thinking about it um, today and I was feeling like they're, I mean, I think a lot of people feel like the summer or fall 95 is the peak or one of the peaks of the band. Right. Um, yeah. They're, I've been listening to so much of these amazing early 90s shows. And in, in, in contrast to like HF Pod, where we would like listen to a show and then jump around and listen to a different show from a different year, like we're going in order, but only listening to these like really monumental shows. So it's sort of a different way of, it's just like listening to the highlights, you know, throughout the years. Um, and Fall 95 is, and I, I think this show is like, they're just kind of getting going. They haven't really hit what we would consider Fall 95 or what, you know, some of those shows later in the tour. But some of the like early 90s speed and precision is sort of like, it's still there, but it's not the focus, you know, because the improv is like getting out there. And I think some of the stuff that I listen to from the show are, I agree, it's like really well played and really, you know, kind of like, Trey was on on top of it at this point, but it's not like the focus, like some of those early nineties shows, you know, where like, that is the point is like how fast they're playing. Um, yeah, I agree with what, that. What do you think that balance was like when you, when you were listening back? Yeah, I think they definitely, you can hear them not pushing every song to its absolute speed. I think it's something that the thing that stands out are songs like Reba that are just so incredibly fast back then, but also just even in other songs like an uncle pen or, they are starting to play a little bit more interesting too in songs like Mike's and Weekapog and just doing different things like putting different songs in the middle or they have a fair amount of debuts and you can see them just trying new stuff and just kind of seeing what's going to stick and what they want to do. It's They're a little bit less formulaic, which is kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, so this was about a month uh, before I saw my first show. I saw my first show um, October 95. Um, what was going on with you at this point and how did you end up at, at these first, whatever it was four four shows? Yeah, I saw the first, I saw, I didn't see the first show of the tour, but I saw the next three. Um, but yeah, I had graduated from high school in June and I went to see the Deer Creek fish show in June and then, which was my first outdoor fish show, which was also my second show. And then it was probably one of the best nights I've ever had at a concert in my life. The music was definitely fine. It was great, but it the whole experience was just absolutely magical. It was, I'll never forget that night. It was so great. And then I went on Dead Tour. So I was on a fair amount of the Dead Tour that summer and kind of glad I did since it was the last one. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I was on that for a little bit and then moved out to Arizona to go to college out there and immediately met my crew and fell in love like the second day of school and ended up going up to California to see these shows the end of end of September. And a bunch of us were going. It was fun. We had like a bus, um, a station wagon. And then like I was in the backseat of like a two-door crappy car with like no air conditioning. And like I remember sitting in the back, like my back like sticking to the car for this like six-hour drive from Tucson out to San Diego. And it was just you know, I was 18. I was with new friends, like on fish tour out West. It was just everything I ever wanted. You know, I moved out West to see the dead out there and they were no more. So I was super pumped to get up to see them. I had seen the rat dog shows in San Francisco in like early September, the first shows that they did out there. I 
also skipped school for that. So I was already off to a really good start my freshman year in college of seeing all the West Coast shows I wanted to see and not going to school. So that was working out really well for me. And uh, yeah, so I'd been up to San Francisco already, done that really long drive from Tucson, but and I was super excited to go back up. And yeah, we started in San Diego and we saw that second show of the tour, which was fine, but it was awesome. It was like on this grassy peninsula that was like surrounded by water. And just seeing fish out west was just blew me away, just being in that environment. You know, I had seen Midwest fish only, and that was super cool. And then we went up to the Greek theater in LA, and that was a very kind of LA scene. It was interesting the difference between what I had seen in the Midwest before Jerry had died and then after in the fall out West. There's a lot of people that were probably would have been on, you know, thinking about going on dead tour. And I know Rat Dog did like a couple shows early September and then they did some later in November, but they weren't on tour that fall. So a lot of people were on fish tour that probably wouldn't have been. And um, yeah, it was crazy. I saw like Kurt Loder from MTV was like interviewing people in LA and in the lot beforehand. It was just, yeah, it was just very LA and very such a different scene than I had seen in the Midwest. So it was, it was really fun and exciting. And yeah, we pulled into San Diego, um, into Shoreline and I was just so excited to go there. I mean, this is like such a historic Grateful Dead venue. So I was pumped. That's awesome. And we know, we know that the, you found your crew and you had dreads. So your crew was easy to, to yeah. find. It was easy sure. to find. Yeah. Or you were easy I, to find or, or maybe it just all works. We found each other, you know, yeah. actually the way that we found each other is kind of funny is that someone who would become my very good friend was moving, like helping move mattresses into freshman dorms and he sold us some fake hash. And <laughs> I, my friend and I went to our dorm room and we were like, what is this? And so we went and found him and he was like, okay, you're cool. Do you want to come to a party tonight? Wow. So that's how I met my friends. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I guess wow. I passed the test. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> well, okay. So we should get into the show, but do we need to do a quick- You sure quick... you don't want me to just tell stories the whole time, RJ? Well, no, I want you to tell stories, but I want, to, I want <laughs> you to kidding. tell me stories in the, in the context of this show also. Um, it seems fair. <laughs> should we- should we talk about Section 119 before we get into the show? Yeah, I'll talk about Section 119 any day. Okay. All right. Okay. But before you do that, can I just tell mm-hmm. you that I, I mentioned before, which is very, very interesting for everyone, that I was doing folding my laundry right before. Yeah. Well, folding laundry for my whole family of five people. And um, I have like a bunch of Section 119 shirts that I had to I had to fold because I wore them last week because I wear my Section 119 shirts all the time. But that's that's not the ad. But it should be, because that really is a good ad. (laughs) Yeah, Section 119 is the best. Everyone knows they're a premier apparel brand where so many fans, including RJ, including myself, including Jonathan, all shop to represent their favorite brand in everyday life. They've got sophisticated designs and epic quality, donut-inspired button-down shirts, board shorts, dry-fit polos, hoodies. They've got so many things. They've got amazing workout gear for women right now or men who can fit into them get after it, whatever you want. They look amazing. They're really, really nice quality, excellent to go running in. And you get spotted. People are like, hey, I see you. I like your donuts. And you're like, yep, I'm cool. I'm out here running, getting in shape for MSG. So check them out. It's code section, I'm sorry, code summer22, and you're going to get a 20% discount off your next purchase. And that's at section119.com. Um, I will say this, this past weekend, I was wearing the like the light um, zip up hoodie that I got with a bolt on it, lightning bolt on it. 
And it's just like right for this time of year, it's perfect. It's lightweight, but it also, you know, you need something. Um, and in Burlington, it was raining on on Sunday afternoon, so I, I had a little I had a little hood. Um, it's perfect. So my, our friend Drew just tweeted because I said we were talking about this this show, and I think he echoes a lot of uh, the feelings about these this kind of first run. And I know they were different for you because you were there, but. Basically, well, what he said is the beginning of the fall tour is brutal compared to the rest of the year. And I think that's like a, that is definitely a common, that's a common feeling for sure, right? Yeah. Um, well, they were repeating a lot of songs. And it, like the jamming wasn't quite there, but I actually do think, I I, I remember collecting these tapes, first of all, because mm-hmm. it was the first tour where I was collecting tapes while I was actually seeing the band, you know? So it was really fun to like, and by then I think the tape trading thing had progressed to where like I could get tapes within a week you know and yeah I, so you I, could get them I probably mm-hmm. had this before I went to see fish for the first time and I you know I listened to all of them because I, they were new and I wanted to listen to them but I rarely go back to these these shows um but I remember getting this tape um and it was you know Shoreland like you said historic venue but you know I think these these shows are extremely overlooked so I think I want to hear your perspective on, on the show. And, and also I think there's something really interesting that, that happens in this show, but we can talk about that later. So what, what, when you're looking back on it, what about set one? Like what stuck, sticks out to you? I mean, this Reba is pretty amazing. It's really fast. It's perfectly played. It's got an amazing peak. It just seems really easy. There's a YouTube video of a lot of the show and watching Trey play this Reba is, it's just, it looks like, the guitars playing him. I mean, it just looks so effortless and energized and it's really cool. I think that stands out. The antelope is crazy fast, gets cacophonous, kind of nuts. But to me, the moment that, you know, stood out was obviously something that was really meaningful. And as a big Grateful Dead fan, was a big deal. Um, Because Fish never, you know, they never talked about the dead, you know, purposefully. And they kind of especially at this point in their career, are really trying to kind of keep their distance from them. And so when Trey dedicates I'm Blue and I'm Lonesome to Jerry, it was incredibly moving um, just to hear him talk about it and say that it, you know, it was the last place that he and a couple of the other guys had seen Jerry perform and dedicate the song to him and said he knew he was up there listening. No one expected that especially after like this crazy antelope to just all of a sudden have this song come out. It's an absolutely gorgeous version. I remember crying my eyes out during this performance. There was a huge moon and it was just kind of like hanging over the amphitheater. And it just, it just seemed like Jerry was there. It was really, really beautiful. And the crowd's kind of clapping along and there was just this feeling of like, you're in San Francisco, you know, fish is singing to Jerry. And it was, it was really moving. That's really cool. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's great to hear. Um, I think the, well, we should talk about the chess game real quick because that mm-hmm. started, um, and they talked about that at the beginning of the beginning of the, um, the right before Reba. Um, so one of thing that's interesting to me, I've never really thought about this in this way, although we, we did talk about the chess game as part of the kind of community focus, um, of season two of undermine and, and, um, Pooh, who was the first person to make the um, move, was on Undermine talking about this, and he um, he talked about how he met Paige a bunch of times, like in the lot or backstage or before the shows, and that they always talked about playing chess. And then he ended up being the first, the first of any of the uh, of the 
fans to to make a chess move, which is cool. But one thing I hadn't thought about is, do you think this is like this chess game was a way that they wanted to stay engaged with fans as they were growing quickly? Because it's sort of like they're playing all these huge venues. You know, they'd been playing them since '94 for some of them, but. It's kind of like at this point they're really big, you know, and and we all know that throughout their history they'd remained like tight with their fans in different ways. And I just wonder if the chess game was a way for them to like stay engaged with fans on a more personal level as they were growing really fast, or or just like a a fun thing because people talked about playing chess at a bunch of a bunch of times. Um, I guess it could be both, but sort of interesting to think about whether this was something that they were like this is a way for us to stay in touch as we're getting a little more out of touch because we're getting we're getting big, you know? Yeah. And I think they've always been trying to find ways to connect with their audience, like whether it was secret language or, you know, other ways that they could participate and have have the audience participate and this not just feel like, you know, something that they're just putting out there, that they're also getting something back and kind of it's a it's a communal relationship. I think that that's something that stands out about them. Definitely one of the things that stood out to them, to me about them compared to like the Grateful Dead who you, you know, you were in the audience and just felt like you were getting this performance. And then there was no kind of like give and take between the audience and the band. And I think Fish has always, you know, worked to maintain that relationship and be, you know, have a a relationship with their audience in a way that is super genuine and based on mutual interests. Right. So I think that like having this chess match, it was definitely something I think that they probably wanted to stay in touch with their community and also just it's something they like and they probably thought it was funny and different and weird. And I mean, I think like the next summer when I saw them in Europe, all they did was play chess outside the venues with fans for hours, like to the point where like the show would go on like very late because, you know, Fishman would be in a chess game and not want to give it up. So I think that, yeah, they, (laughs) they liked connecting with, with the audience that way. That's cool. That's yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think, um, yeah, that's a that's a good point. And there there had been other, you know, the secret language and there obviously there had been other other things that they had done through the uh you know, throughout the years, but this is just sort of an interesting and also like the way Trey explained it is like if you want to make a move, you know, just go to the Greenpeace table. And I just imagine that now being I don't I don't know. I don't think I don't know if we talked to anyone about what it was like at the Greenpeace table, but I just imagine it being like hundreds of people trying to participate. Um but I don't remember from my first show how many people were there? Yeah, I don't remember that either. I feel like it was so different in the 90s. I don't know. Like it was just a different a different vibe. I can't imagine if it was like mobbed there, but maybe yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. We have to ask yeah. Greenpeace Mike and figure out. We what. do. <laughs> we need to do that. We need to do that. Um, I should have asked Amy Skelton and, and the Waterwheel folks on Sunday because we talked about this transition kind of from Greenpeace to, to Waterwheel, which just happened, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of years after this. Um Anyway, the 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 Reba is really cool. One thing on the recording was like, there's something weird sounding with the with the drums on this. I don't know if Fishman's like hitting like the wood blocks during the entire song, but do you hear that at all? I didn't. When you were listening back, oh. <clears throat> it was really strange. And and also like these audience tapes are like not that great. They're not that good. You know? No. Um, yeah. I feel like we were still like transitioning from you know smaller venues to to huge venues and some of the fall 95 stuff sounded good but this was like it's a little it's a but there's something going on with fishman in reba that was like slightly distracting during the composed part but it's really fast and really well played and then like like you said the uh 
the solo is is it's a great it's a great version for sure um i i, I saw the um virginia beach show in 98 you know when they played terrapin mm-hmm. um and that was like you know definitely top five fish experience um and i, I can imagine that when they you know when they acknowledge this other band it's it's pretty special so that's cool that you got to you got to see that yeah i mean i'd rather see them play terrapin station but still this was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, amazing i'm what, listening to that what was your favorite part of set one when you're listening back I mean, sentimentally, you know, I'm blue and I'm lonesome, but I definitely think, I definitely think the, uh, the Reba is my favorite part. I also, you know, Uncle Penn is so good. They're doing amazing stuff with all their bluegrass stuff back then. And I'd like to hear them play Uncle Penn more these days. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think everyone who's listening knows that, you know, the fall 94, they had this whole acoustic kind of setup that they were, that they were doing. And, um, you know, inspired by playing with Bela Fleck and, and Del McCurry. And we've heard Ronnie McCurry tell stories about that on various podcasts and interviews. Um, it's pretty cool that they were, they were kind of, they were, they were still keeping it going and at this point, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, okay. I think the antelope is just antelope is kind of like the fall 95, the, the 95 antelopes are just amazing. Um, yeah. That was just a really good, it's not like super extensive, but they weren't like it was 11 minutes, you know, but they, they played so fast and so well that like 11 minutes is, is enough, is enough time, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, these, these antelopes just whip people into a total frenzy back then. They were so high energy that they were just absolutely like commanding to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Josh says, bring uncle Penn back. Uncle Penn has yeah. not been played since Baker's dozen which is wow, kind of amazing time. to me. I've only seen it. I've only seen it twice. I think I saw it at my first show in 95 and then once in 2009 and that's it. Yeah. I don't think I've seen it very much either. I no, I haven't seen it that much either. It's been paid like 200, more than 200 times, but it's, it's, it's hard a to lot catch. Of times. It's been yeah. hard to catch. If you saw a show in 94, you, you, oh. you were, that's probably the most likely time to see it, right? Yeah. I've seen it four times. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. Bring it back. I agree. Um, I'm interested. I would be interested to hear what it would sound like these days. Um, all right. I, I, know. I, I think we're going to get might so not be gonna, that fast. <laughs> it might not be that fast, but it might be really cool. You know, it'd yeah. be very spirited. Um, okay. We're going to get into set two, but first I want to tell you all about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD. Uh, Sunset Lake CBD came to the show at, at Nectar's and they set up a table. They were giving out samples. Um, our friend Sai, who, who works there, um, he had a good time and um, I, I hope I hope the people who were there got to got to experience Sunset Lake CBD. But their line of smokable hemp products are for the old deadhead or the young fish fan like Megan, who might be searching for a mellow body high. Smoking CBD has all the benefits of high THC cannabis without the side effects that some people might experience. I don't expect that many. I don't experience that many side effects from cannabis, but I know people do. Um, but I also think that, you know, CBD is great and Sunset Lake is is great. The other day, um, last week after I was traveling a bunch and di- on different time zones, I woke up at like three in the morning and just sort of like out of like I was just like awake and I was like, shit, what am I going to do? So I ate two Sunset Lake CBD gummies and then I went back to sleep until eight. It was amazing. So it, it works. I'm telling Perfect. you guys. I'm telling you guys. And are you, are you keeping them next to your bed now? 
They're they, yeah, they're in the bathroom. They're in the bathroom. Okay, that's so close enough. They're yeah. close enough. Um, but they have they have nine different strains from this year's harvest. Um, all the flowers grown, cured, and trimmed by Sunset Lake CBD farmers, and they bring the Sunset Lake CBD directly from their farm to your door. And for those of you who are watching, just got visitors during the Sunset Lake CBD ad. They're too young to use Sunset Lake CBD, but check out yeah. Sunset Lake CBD at, at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off all products. Yay, Sunset Lake. It's the best. I have really gotten into their sleep gummies and they're just the best because they have melatonin in them. So they're just absolutely perfectly formulated to just help you go to sleep at night. Yeah. I like to take yeah. them like after the weekend when I just need to like get a really good night's sleep. Yeah. I definitely recommend. Yeah. yeah the, the nighttime ones with melatonin are good. I, I, I like to take melatonin anyway. So like it's, why not, why not do both? It's perfect. Anti-inflammatory too. Um, so, all right, Megan, what was the, do you remember the set break of this show? Do you remember what was going on heading into the second set? No, I, I think I may have been in an altered state, a very altered state um, during this set break. But I remember being really excited to be there and everyone was just talking about the first set and especially about this dedication to Jerry. It was a beautiful night in San Francisco from what I can remember. And we were just excited to kick it off with the second set. So I was really, really excited to start off with Runaway Gym, which is such a great set opener always. And at the beginning, Trey makes a comment about um, how they're using the Portuguese defense and they're going to crush crush the audience and that they're not scared. And, I mean, they do go on to win this match, right? Don't they win it at New Year's? I think so. I think they did win. Mm-hmm. Um, they they seem like they were pretty into chess, um, although I'm sure a lot of fans were too. But I agree that Runaway Gym is like – you know, it, it kind of is fall 95, you know, that and yeah. an ACDC bag, which opened the first show I saw. It just, it's just, it's just such a great way to kick off a set. I wish they would open more, more sets with Runaway Gym, even if they're short, you know? Yeah. I think I, I saw one in like Charlotte much. 2019 or something. And it was so fun just to start the second set. I remember I was like seeing friends and I heard it and that's when you like run back to your spot. Cause you're like, yes, but this yeah. one's good. It's like, you can hear them almost like Trey's almost like scratching a little bit. It's like, He's doing mm-hmm. this little scratching mm-hmm. sound, and the jam has an awesome peak. It's fun. Yeah, it's it's really good. Um, there's, I, I just I like the way that this this set starts to starts to unfold. Um, the I wonder I wonder when the last time they opened up a first set with Runaway Jim. It, it, I think it's been a little while. I'm gonna look right now. Okay, it's yeah. 2015. August, wow. or, yeah, August first, mm-hmm. twenty fifteen was the first was the last um, first set opener. They did a second set opener in twenty nineteen in Charlotte. That's the one you're talking about, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but you know, come on, guys, it's okay. Like, just op- go ahead and open open with it. Um, maybe they will. Maybe they will. Um, so the fog that surrounds, which, which is a totally different kind of thing than than used to happen. Um, I, I really want to talk about the mic song, but what else before the mics? Well, the fog that surrounds is pretty cool because they only played it eight times, right? I saw three of them. They played two in California, I think one like two nights before this, and then they played one at the last, one of the last stops on this outdoor stops on this tour in Arizona um, at Compton Terrace, a show that I have no memory of. Um, but it's cool because it's just like a reworked taste with different lyrics and Fishman singing it, and then 
they play it that way through September. And then in mid-October, they bring back taste with fog or something they call it, or the taste that surrounds, they call it. And fans, I think, call it tasty fog. And that's like a little bit of a mashup of both. And then in mid-October, or I mean in um, July in Amsterdam the next year, they, they're like, announce it. They're like, taste is back. Fog that surrounds is over. And it just has a few of the lyrics from Fog That Surrounds. But it's crazy to hear this song kind of go through this evolution. Yeah, I was thinking, it was reminding me of the the Lowell Mass show from the spring of 95 when they, when, you know, they asked the band, that's the fans to help the band name yeah. Spock's Brain. Um, so this Son of a Mule, which I heard like every time I saw Fish in the early days. Um, Same. Yeah, still like not not that big of a fan apparently i was looking at it today apparently the the first show that i saw um which was october 28th 95 apparently the set in the set of a mule is on the gem charts um which oh, is sort of interesting because cool. i don't really i don't really need to hear son of a mule um even if again. it's jammed out huh well, I just think the jamming out is just kind of extending this this set of a mule exactly. thing. <laughs> you know i mean they're not this gonna has like, like a, no they're not gonna do anything crazy yeah, yeah but um <laughs> It has. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't see it that often. I, it's, I'm probably being too hard on it, but um, the, I feel the same way about it. It's just. It's you know. It is what it is. It's a very like. I don't know. I think this one is pretty good. It's pretty ferocious. Like the duel or whatever gets pretty mm-hmm. heated and pretty cool. Yeah. It's not yeah. my favorite kind of fish to hear, but they really liked it in the mid '90s. Yeah. Yeah. And it was. You know. This is like 12 minutes. So. You know, that's that's a pretty long time of them kind of going back and forth. They've been playing it since spring of '94, and by this point, they're they were using it to kind of do this dueling, dueling, dueling things. Um, yeah, I think that's too long for Son of a Mule. I think that's too much. Yeah, well, it was longer than Mike's, which is which is crazy. That's a problem um, right there. Yeah, that's you know that, that's a little that's a little much. But this Mike's is, I think it's so Mike's. I think is like the most interesting part of this show and, and partially because I think the um I don't know the the fall ninety five shows are a little less like out there and weird than summer ninety five, you know, and by the time they get mm-hmm. to, you know, the the late um December, like New Year's, you know, or, or the twelve seven ninety five, like the the mic songs are just amazing. So I think this is pretty cool. Like it's it's really a good prediction predictor of what's to come with with mike's song um you get to like these these shows that are later on in the tour like you know the what the show from orlando or the show from binghamton which which don't have mics but the, the jamming style starts to like really build out from here and i feel like this is probably one of the first jams of this tour that really like kind of previews that direction you know um and I don't know. I think that's like the one thing about the show that in, in terms of like listening back um, a bunch, this Mike song is it's really it's like the first one of the fall 95 tour. Um, so they played in Great Woods, the last show of the summer tour. And then and then this one. And then I was this is like crazy to me, but they played it after this. They played it on the October 11th, October 19th, October 25th, November 11th, November 15th, 21st, 25th. Then December first, seventh, sixteenth, and then of course twelve thirty one. And I don't know if this is like unprecedented, but it's definitely uncommon. Every Mike's 
that I just mentioned besides the 1216 one is on the jam charts. So 11 out of the 12 wow. that they played on fall tour is on the jam charts. So, I mean, it was just such a big vehicle for, for jamming, but I also think this might have been, I mean, you might, you might know better than I do, but I feel like this was like the first big jam of the, of the whole tour. I think there is like a, there was a David Bowie in the first show, but I think like this is, I think this is like the first, this is when you get your first taste of jamming fall 95. So that's what I'll say in defense of this show. I think this is the, you should listen to this mics because you'll hear the first jamming of fall 95. The first real, like what we would identify as that tour jamming. I think that's a good, I think that's a good thing to to check out. Yeah. It's like the first kind of type two moment out of the whole four shows that they've played so far. And it's a good, I mean, the second jam is amazing. I mean, first when it starts, it's cool because they've got Fishman's doing some like growling in the beginning. He's like, which totally reminded me of what he's been doing with his effects now. He's like, yeah. And he's making all these like growl noises. Yeah. It's like they were psyched for it to be, and it was the first in four shows. So I think they were, they were excited to dive into it. Yeah. And Mike just sounds amazing. He's just dropping some like really nice bombs right at the beginning. And then. That second jam is super menacing. I mean, it's like dark, dark and creepy and like plotting. It just has this like really cool vibe to it. It's almost, you want it to keep going. You want to like them to just like stretch it out more, which is, I guess, what they'll get to. But it lands beautifully. And I I think this is a great mic to listen to. That's my one. And I'm not, I don't want, I don't mean to tell you that this show that you liked and went to is not good, but I'm just saying for people who, who think that this, the beginning of this tour is not good compared with the rest, you got to go back and, and listen to the, listen to this because it is the first taste of our, what we would consider a fall 95 jamming, especially it reminded me like a, there's a little bit of the, the reason I brought up the Orlando, you know, the stash Manteca and then like the Binghamton jams. Like, I don't know. There's something that's like, like you said, it's sort of dark, but there's also like a melody in there. And it just, I don't know, there's something like really, really cool happening, happening there. Um, and I think what I want to do after this is listen to this one again, then listen to the 1231 version, which I think yeah. a lot of people feels like, you know, I mean, obviously that show is a, a peak, but also like that version is really great. Um, so I don't know. I had fun like diving into this and trying to, trying to figure out, figured that out, but they, they start teasing keyboard army, before the end of mics, right? And it kind of like eventually goes yeah. there. It it kind of melts. It's really pretty. It just kind of melts out into this like, you know, there's this like creepy kind of like dark sound. And then you hear the keyboards kind of like start to kind of trinkle, tinkle in. And then they each leave their instruments and head over there. I remember on my set list, because I kept set lists at the time, like during the show, um, I wrote four on keyboards because I didn't know what it was called. I also called cars, trucks, buses, jam, because... <laughs> it was only like, you know, this is when they were playing all the Billy Breeze stuff and we didn't know what a lot of it was called yet. Um, but yeah, the keyboard army is so pretty. I mean, it's only been played 15 times. I saw it twice on that tour, once in San Diego, two nights before, and then here. And, you know, they play it a bunch this fall and then not again until 2015 at Dick's during the Thank You Encore. So this is the fact that they brought that out in 2015 is crazy, too. It was yeah. so, you know, over like Kill Devil Falls or something else, but especially like that's just to me was so shocking. I yeah. thought it was gone forever. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I feel like the tapes that I got back in the day, I can look at a 95 
Fall '95 tape. I think I think people were lab- labeling it keyboard cavalry, um, mm-hmm. maybe because there was like acoustic army also where they were mm-hmm. all playing acoustic. Um, but I guess I don't know. I wonder what happened with that naming thing because in Fall '95 they were also doing the acoustic thing where they you yeah. know where all four of them played acoustic. Um, but you know that's not really that important. Um, what what? What did you think of the rest? What's what else? What else from this? Well, I like, I mean, it's pretty cool that this is like the Mike's groove is the keyboard army is, you know, in the middle there instead of hydrogen or something else. It's pretty cool. I don't know how often they did that, but it's pretty cool to think that they did that. I also love this week of pog. I think the intro out of keyboard army is super cool. It's just like, it's, it just sounds different. I would recommend you listen to this whole Mike's groove. If you haven't heard it, it's really good. I love this week of pog. This the solo that Trey does is like super soulful over just an insanely fast pace that Fishman's keeping up. I mean, Weka Pogs, just like antelopes in the mid nineties are just races, absolute races. And this one is, is that way too. So the, we, we got them, we got the debut of suspicious minds, right? Um, yeah. Which was so crazy. What was, that, what was that like? It was crazy because the night before Fishman sang Aerosmith crying and he came out with like a huge scarf tied to the mic and did like a whole like Steven Tyler, like Aerosmith thing. And it was just, that song was huge then. And it was just hilarious. And so everybody was like, what's Fisherman going to do tonight? And he comes out in like this huge cape and he starts singing Suspicious Minds, the debut of the song, you know, old Elvis song, just like so funny. And then he starts like strutting around well, it's like during the buildup and he puts on and like if there's lights on the inside of the cape and he's just like flashing it around and like vamping and it was hilarious. It was so great. It was just one of those like old school fish moments. Like he was doing a lot of that in the beginning of this tour and it was really fun. I watched, um, I mentioned this in our, on our premium episode, which again, you should subscribe, subscribe to Osiris Premium yeah, on check Apple. check it out. Because you could hear me talking about Elvis, the movie, and how it's not that good. Oh yeah! Spoiler alert. Um, but <laughs> I kind of forgotten that this this song was like a later. This was like a big, re, I guess, sort of a revival hit for Elvis, right? I mean, it came yeah, like, like later late, on. Later on, yeah, I think it was his last like number one hit or something. And yeah, he was like one of those last gasps, and then he did like a residency in Vegas or something. But this was kind of yeah. one of those like I'm not dead yet moments where you like send yeah. out like. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. Fisher nails it in the, the vocals. It's very like, you know, old, like fat Elvis kind of. It's perfect. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. His his voice is very like, you know, <laughs> he's he's definitely trying really hard, which I, I think is I know. You know, that's cool. Um it doesn't even sound like him at certain moments. I'm like, is that still fish? Because it sounds he's really working it. I don't know. But was Elvis fat then? I think he was, yeah. And I you know, in the movie, they they have a, a they don't make him that fat. Um, I don't know how fat he actually was at the end, but um, <laughs> I, I don't. don't think so it was I, good. I don't think it was good. Um, so you get like a, a kind of a standard sort of end to this with with the Amazing Grace, Good Times, Bad Times encore, which was a which was a common common closer. But um, what else? What else were you reflecting on um, in the in toward the end of this, this show? Yeah, I mean, I think they were doing a really good job of setless construction, like this, like, you know, ending both the first and the second set with kind of like, you know, good rockers like Cavern and, you know, 
sample, like just kind of to bring in, you know, a little more normalcy and like just rocking it to it. And then their acapella back then is just incredible. It's so good. They were working on it a lot. It sounds amazing. And then this Good Times is just, it's just shred. It's so fun and just a great way to end the set. I mean, I think they had a lot of fun during the show. I, you know, these shows are not, this is the best show of the tour so far. Like if you look at like the ratings and just like the playing and I think Satless construction. Um, but they were repeating songs a lot. You know, they were playing a lot of the Billy Breeze stuff. Like I saw so many of the same songs over those three nights, but I actually didn't care back then because they were newer to us anyway. And um, it was just a good time. You know, it's 95. Like, yeah. what do you have to complain about? I was 18, you know, partying at Fish. Good times. Yeah. You were 18. Good for you. I, so mm-hmm. I was, how old was I? I was 16. So I, I could only really leave for the night and then go back home. That's why I only saw them in it, the palace, the first yeah. in 95 and 96. Um, did you go oh, to that I, palace show? Either of those? No. Cause I was, I was, I had were, moved away from gone. Michigan. Yeah. I was, I was looking at that this morning. Like if I had, you know, I would have gone to Kalamazoo also, you know, mm-hmm. if I, if I had in retrospect, but you know, what are you going to do? Could like, I wasn't going to go to Halloween 95 and, in Chicago when I was 16. I just don't think I would have been able to pull that off, but I would have liked to try. Probably not. I mean, I went down to Chicago when I was 16 to see the Grateful Dead in Soldier Field. And I lied to my parents and stayed overnight in a hotel and I, with my boyfriend and I was grounded for two weeks, but it was (laughs) totally worth it. (laughs) That's amazing. Good for you. I know. I well now I have a 14-year-old daughter and I'm like, holy shit, she ever did anything like that in two years. She's so much better than me though. She's smarter than me. My it's my younger one that I'm worried about. Well, there I mean, what goes around comes around. That's what they say. (laughs) Exactly. Um well, people who are who are listening and watching, um, we hope that you enjoy this conversation about about Fall 95. It's I think it's I'm glad you chose this. it was fun to go back to this fall tour without like diving straight into you know the the lincoln show from 1021 or or one of the kind of like big shows from december because i think this um i think there's some, some stuff here that people should listen to so i hope we gave september 95 a little a little boost here you know yeah and thanks for you know listening to all my stories and humoring me i probably didn't get like all the stories no, maybe not, but you know, maybe offline or maybe, maybe if you come it, up to me at a show, somebody yeah. can come up to me and talk to me about 95 and I'll tell you all my real dirty, dark secrets. Yeah. We'll do that on HF pod <laughs> premium. It's only four ninety nine. Oh a month, yeah, exactly. Um, get, get these stories from, from Megan. Um, True. Is there anything else? I mean, I think this was fun and thank you for choosing the show. Is there anything else we need to say before we, uh, before we let everyone go back to their day? Well, we want to remind everyone about our friends at free. So Fans for Racial Equity seeks to build an anti-racist live music scene and promote liberation through racial equality in the world at large by activating the collective power of our community. By facilitating thoughtful engagement around race and its intersection with other issues, Free empowers fans to challenge discrimination and systematic oppression wherever they see it. To get involved in Free's education, outreach, and community partnership programs, you can sign up to volunteer at fansforracialequity.org, or you can share in the groove at their table during shows, check them out, always awesome people working at the shows, and just really important work they're doing, and we're lucky to have them in our community. That is great. Thank you. Um, so I have one crying kid and one not crying kid. 
Yeah, it's like, oh boy, it's like mutiny over there. You're going to need you're gonna need to do some work, RJ. I know. Aww. I know. Everything's going to be fun. Yeah, I was going to I was going to tell you that I'm almost done. Isn't that fun? So maybe that's the right time to say yeah. thank you everybody for for tuning in. Thanks everyone. Thanks for your comments. We appreciate it. And we'll see you on Monday. See you guys soon. <laughs> Bye. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and created the ultimate music obsessives podcast, Discograffiti. Each episode of Discograffiti features an eclectic and wide-ranging slew of cool musicians doing long-form, deep-dive interviews in which we rate either their favorite band's output or their own from zero to five stars. From Mike Watt rating the Minutemen to Terry Kirkman from The Association, Bob Nastanovich on Pavement, Bob Forrest on The Band, Bob Mayer on The Replacements, and Lou Barlow on The Zombies, each new guest swings a hard left into an area you either had no idea you needed to know about or know all about and can't believe you're not alone out there. Coming up, here's who we've got on the program. The Lemon Twigs, Robert Schneider from The Apples in Stereo, the Dedrick siblings from The Free Design, Joel Self on mother-murdering superstar drummer Jim Gordon and a record-breaking 20-hour interview with the great Michelle Phillips about the mamas and the papas. You're not going to want to miss it because there's nothing quite like it. Don't let your youth go to waste, lads and ladies. Discograffiti. Subscribe. <laughs>